welcome to the Wonder Women podcast with me, Rhea Hebden. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Fozia Khan, who's a development executive at Amazon Studios, where she works across unscripted television. Prior to joining Amazon earlier this year, Fozia worked in commissioning at Channel 4 in the documentaries department, where she oversaw programs such as 24 Hours in Police Custody, Damalola, The Boy Next Door, and Is COVID Racist? Before that, Fozia worked alongside Patrick Holland at BBC Two and at the Garden Productions, where she produced Posh People and Extremely British Muslims. Fozia, welcome to the Wonder Women podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to kick off by starting to talk about your career. I mean, can you tell me, how did you first break into the industry? Quite a strange way, actually. Um, so I did the usual thing of writing to every production company and, you know, begging for a job um, and got sort of big pile of rejection letters. I actually did a science degree. I did physiology and biochemistry at university, like a good Asian girl, and um, basically wanted to work in um, science communication. So either as a science journalist or making science documentaries. It was a bit of a coincidence, actually. I saw an advert in the stage. Do you remember the stage? And they had adverts for auditions. And there was an audition um, for a new science show for Channel 5, kids science show. Uh Um, And they wanted a presenter stroke researcher to come and make the pilot. So I sent in a little tape and I went to an audition and I got the job because even though there were lots of presenters there, I was the only one with a science background. Yeah. So I... I um, it was more than that as well. Not just <laughs> a science background. Um, and so I did, I presented and researched this uh, science pilot. Um, it was called FAQ and it was a uh, the tagline was tomorrow's world meets friends so it was a group of presenters um in a sort of trendy apartment talking about science and gadgets and and things like that and um the series got commissioned but unfortunately the commissioner said we love the show but we're not sure about that presenter oh which was me so that was my that was my presenting career over but the production company asked me if I wanted to come and work as a researcher on the show working on the scripts and that's actually what I really wanted to do so I was absolutely thrilled and I went to work on the show it was a series um that actually got recommissioned as well and that was that was my start in in telly that's so cool so you still got to contribute editorially and then that kind of set you off for your career in telly I mean do you think it's easier for people to get into tv now I'm not sure I mean I think that there are lots more um entry points as far as I can see you know we've got an apprenticeship scheme at Amazon um Mm -hmm. I know there are lots of similar schemes at various broadcasters and SVODs so I think that I think people are realizing how tough it is for certain people to get into telly and they are trying to find ways for those people to get in so I'm, I'm certainly seeing that I mean I don't know I think it's probably just as tough I imagine you know, it's it's a very competitive industry. So let's talk about the early stages of your career, because I was watching this this morning. You made your first breakout with the first cut short film called Asian Gracefully. And I love this. It focused on an old people's home for uh, Asian people, which is something we haven't really seen before. Uh, being of Asian origin yourself, how important was it for you to make this short film? Well, Prior to being given the opportunity to direct the first cut, I only worked on science and history and, and a few observational documentaries. But mm. I, I think I probably made a conscious decision not to make Asian shows um, mm. just because I was Asian. I think I didn't want to be sort of typecast in that way. Mm. But when it came to 
making my own documentary and making something that was a bit more authored, um, I really wanted to make a story. I really wanted to tell a story that was more personal. Um, and actually that was a really important film for me because my parents had both just died. Um, mm. And I'd spent a lot of time with my dad just before he died, he had dementia. Mm. Um, I was looking after him. And even though he, he couldn't remember who was who, he remembered everything about his childhood. Mm. Um, so we, we had a really sort of, um, sort of personal time together talking about his childhood and him telling me stories that he'd never told me before about growing up in poverty, about partition. And it was such an eye opener for me. And um, I just thought, God, there's a whole generation of people who have these incredible stories that they've never really shared with their kids because probably because they're too, I imagine, because they're too traumatic and people want to move on. Um, So I just felt like I really wanted to tap into that community and um, also the idea of an Asian old people's home is, is very, very unusual. You know, it's such a big thing in Asian culture to, to sort of look after your elderly parents. So mm-hmm. I was quite interested in that and the decision pe- decisions people had made and, and that generation. So it felt like a really good fit. And um, it was a very cathar- cathartic thing, actually, for me to make that film. I was just going to say that, actually, just because you're you know it's a process in dealing with the, the loss of your 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 parents but but equally tapping into your heritage and and um, telling a story in such a unique way about a community of people that we don't often hear about yeah no that was exactly it and um you know because it was a more authored film mm-hmm. i felt like i wanted I, I felt like who else would tell that story you know i wanted to tell that story um and so yeah and it was important when i was directing that to do that to tell a personal story yeah and would you advise people who have a story that they really want to tell but but maybe feel that it wouldn't necessarily sit in traditional linear television to still you know at some point in their careers make that story yeah absolutely I mean there's so many outlets now you know and I think it's just such a brilliant thing to do for yourself I mean First Cut remains a brilliant sort of platform for young directors and you know there are there are a few opportunities like that in in sort of Uh, traditional television but there are lots of opportunities in other spaces so I mean for me it was a brilliant thing to do so yeah I'd highly recommend it. Now you've made some brilliant documentaries over the years what was the single most defining moment that really elevated things for you? I think working on the first series of The Family because that was the first fixed rig show um, in the sort of documentary space and you know I worked on that from sort of development all the way through and you know it was, it was genre defining you know from that came One Born Every Minute, 24 yes. Hours in, in A&E, 24 Hours in Police Custody, educating series so it was you know it was a big moment and it was a big big risky bold project for Channel 4. I remember um, that it was brilliant <laughs> it was so captivating because we'd never seen anything like that before and it was also really, um, if you think of like Gogglebox now, how we connect to certain moments because we do or we react to things in the same way. The family did that. It really brought people together, didn't you find? Definitely. Like you'd, you'd watch definitely. them have a row and then they'd make up and you'd be like, oh, we do that in our house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And also, you know, the, the power of the fixed rig is that you can capture those moments. You know, you're not in there. Um, and uh yeah, I mean, it was an incredible, incredible thing to work on just because it was, you know, it was it was hugely risky. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, we were all sort of taking a chance um, and we worked very closely with Channel 4 and it paid off. So it was a, it was a real highlight. 
And in your current role now as the development exec at uh, Amazon Studios, what's it like? I mean, what are some of the advantages that come with working for a streaming video on demand service compared to, say, a, you know, a commissioner for a traditional broadcaster? Um, I mean, I think probably all spots are different. And, you know, I absolutely loved working at Channel 4 and I really learned so much. I think the thing that attracted me to this role at Amazon was that, you know, it's, it's a fairly new team. It's a very small team. Um, and even though we're working for Amazon, we're, we're a tiny team. And I, and I really like that because, you know, some of my best moments in television in my career have been sort of working in small teams. You know, when I first started at Dragonfly, there were, there were only a few of us and just watching it grow and evolve was brilliant. Um, so that really appealed to me. And then I think, again, that idea of working on fewer things, but they are big and bold and ambitious mm -hmm. that sort of took me you know takes me back to that sort of family space of doing something you know that feels quite scary <laughs> but um you know if it works uh you know the payoff is is you know incredible so well, take notice two things the, the magic happens when you do things that scare you just a little bit exactly so you know when I was talking to Dan Grabner about this job it was it was those two things that made me think oh, actually you know that's really appealing yeah well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's tricky because in such a fast changing and globally competitive market, you kind of you want to be part of this new, exciting thing. But it can be a bit scary, too. I mean, now you're in this commissioning role. How do you stay ahead of the curve? Do you know what? I think it's for me, it's always about talent. You know, it's just finding the best talent and helping them make their best work and, mm. you know, enabling that and, um I think, you know, when I talk about talent, you know, there are brilliant established companies, but I think there's also so much pleasure to be had in finding new talent, finding the next, you know, big company or um, finding the next brilliant director or producer or series producer or exec. So for me, I think, you know, if you can, I think if you can find the right talent, help them do their best work, I think that's when you get great content. I think that's the same across the board. And what kind of things are you working on now or what are you looking for? We've got a big sort of dating reality show being filmed at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, we've also got a um, comedy show with Catherine Ryan. Um, oh, we love which, that. Yes, so uh, that's being filmed. I've also got a feature doc that I'm working on that will be announced very soon. And we, you know, will be moving into sort of the true crime space as well. Um, we've mm. got a few, few projects in that space. Um so yeah, I mean we've got a small slate, but you know we're we're growing it, and um, it's also very varied, though, isn't it? Which creatively must be good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I worked in documentaries at Channel Four, so I'm really enjoying doing more fact dent, doing more entertainment. I mean, that's all sort of new to me, but um, you know I can bring the same sensibilities to it, and it's yeah, it's fun. So Fozia, talk me through because when we first started off, I didn't really ask too much about like your career projection. So talk me through your career trajectory from when you uh, started off in the science department and doing all the researching. What was your kind of steps? Um, so as freelance, you know, I worked on that science show and then it was really, really tough. Like the first two years working in telly are incredibly tough because you're, you know, you don't have many credits on your CV. You're trying to find the next job. Lots of big gaps in between. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was quite fussy about what I did. I knew I wanted to do high end premium factual. Um, so I, I, I had that in mind. So I, I kind of held out for the right jobs. And in between working 
um, on productions. I did everything, you know, I did catering, temping, working in market stalls, literally, you know, just to, to, to keep going. Um, so that took about two years to get, to get, you know, enough credits on my CV where, you know, I could then just work sort of seamlessly from one job to the next. Um, so I think the, the sort of big break came for me. I did, I did freelance for a few years and then I got a job at Dragonfly when they were quite small mm-hmm. um, with uh, Nick Kerwin and Magnus Temple. And I just, we just clicked. I just felt like this is where I want to be. This is, I want this production company to be my home. And, you know, thankfully they felt the same way. So I worked there for a couple of years and then they made me a staff producer and that was really life-changing. I mean, working in television and getting a staff job, you know, I think I was about 28. That was really life-changing. Um, it's a big deal, that. isn't it? Because it gives yeah. you that financial stability uh, to really be able to just to thrive. Absolutely. It's important that you shared about when you were first freelancing before you got your production credits about the other roles that you did. Because I think a lot of young people who want to join our industry think that you're constantly employed and then, you know, are really shocked when suddenly they've got these three months gaps in between shows. It's good that you share that. Yeah, I think you've got to be really adaptable, you know, Mm. and um, I actually I know it was really tough and, you know, it was like trying to pay my rent and, you know, do everything. But um, I really enjoyed it. You know, you get a lot of satisfaction knowing that you've done that yourself. Mm. And what kind of stuff did you work on at Dragonfly? It was so varied. You know, I did a science programme, an Equinox Channel 4 called The Whale That Swam to London, about the whale in the Thames. Um, I did quite a lot of development. I did, um, and then then I worked on the family for quite a long time and other other sort of rig shows I helped with development of. So yeah, I was there for for good, I think for sort of five, six years. That's good. It makes such Mm. a difference, doesn't it? Mm. Because then from there, you're just off and on your way. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I had brilliant credits under my belt and like you say that that job security and who were some of the people that helped you on your way throughout your career do you know what there's so many people that have helped me I can't can't even (laughs) sort of begin to to name them all I mean obviously Nick and Magnus at Dragonfly like giving me that break um was you know massive just I've just worked with so many good execs and directors and you know um and what was great about working on the family is that that put me on channel four's radar so you know we worked very closely with channel four on that we had weekly editorial meetings at channel four and that's quite hard actually when you're sort of younger in the industry getting that exposure Mm. to the channel is quite tough so I was quite lucky and that was working on something that was you know new and big and so I was having weekly meetings at channel four so that was really helpful it's funny because I was talking to um, Kate Thomas, who's ironically, she's a commissioner at Channel 4, and she was saying that it's only when you get to that certain level where you go into those board meeting rooms with senior execs and you learn how the channel works, that it all kind of falls into place. And then you feel a bit more confident about going for senior roles like that. Did yeah, it's, it's the same for you. Yeah, it just demystifies the whole process. You know, mm. you think, you know, when you're in production, especially when you're quite junior, you think, oh, my God, the channels, the commissioners, they're like, they seem like another species. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you go there and you're like, oh, they're, they're just like me. You know, they're just people like me that have, you know, worked and got the opportunities. And um, so, I mean, when I say they're just like me, there were, I mean, you know, I'm going to be honest, there were a lot of white men at Channel 4 at that point. And that was quite intimidating. You know, it wasn't um, as diverse as it is now. Um, 
and so it was intimidating but you become familiar with it you become familiar with the language they use the way they express themselves mm. and it doesn't seem so alien and strange and uh, scary it is weird though isn't it these social codes that we have in the industry that you just learn to adapt with and and roll with but I, I can imagine when people first start they do find that really shocking and and for a lot of people they they don't last because they just can't connect with people and, and they leave but it's you know it's it's good to know that you just got on with it and you obviously are brilliant at what you do so you, you haven't let any of that hold you back are you finding now that as you become more senior in your role there is more d- diversity at senior level yeah I, I I feel there is I mean obviously there's more work to be done um mm. but certainly from when I was um you know making my way up as a sort of producer and going into channels I feel like there's there's much more diversity but yeah I mean still still work to be done for sure I see that you mentor through the Women in Film and Television Mentoring Programme, which is fantastic. Can you tell me what are some of the benefits that you personally get out of mentoring others? First of all, can I say that mentoring changed my life? Like I was when I was um, at the garden, I was mentored by Jay Hunt, who was a brilliant mentor. And she honestly really, really changed the direction of my my career. I mean, I just remember the first time I met her and I sort of told her what I was doing and, you know, gave her my life story. And she just looked at me and she went, you don't know your worth. And she said, she said, I know exactly what to do with you. I need to help you understand your worth. And it was really transformative. It really was. So I'm a massive fan of mentoring. You know, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, you know, I I wish I was as good a mentor as Jay was to me. Um, I'm sure you are passing down of the knowledge right and I think if you've had an amazing mentor you almost want to be as good as them yeah no I mean it was really life-changing and so um what what I love about it is that um for me from a very selfish point of view it keeps me in touch with the production world and the production community and reminds me how tough it is actually and I think that's really important you know even though I've been through it it's easy Mm. to forget how tough it is especially for women for working mothers Um, and so um, often I will mentor women who you know have young kids um, or who are trying to get back into work and it's a really important reminder of how much of a struggle it is still you know for so many people. Well, absolutely. And, and on, on that note of um, being a mother in TV, you know, we've had lots of reports and out in the industry from Telemoms Network and from Share My Telly Job, which have revealed that thousands of women leave the industry every year at the age of just 38. And they uh, cite the reasons being an incompatibility between the working hours in program making paired with family life. I mean, you're a mum to two young daughters. How did you make it work? Honestly, it was such a struggle. I'm not going to lie. It was a real struggle. You know, I, I, uh, you know, I'd go into production and it would be so tough, you know, being away from home, not seeing my kids. They were quite traumatized at times, you know, when I was away for long periods of time. Um, and literally every week I thought, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Every week. And if it wasn't for a few key people who just said, you know, you've got to keep going, we'll help you. Um, I think I would have left too. You know, I think I was just 
lucky there was a bit of an intervention and um, Joe being one of those people, but other people at the garden, you know, David Wise, who was my boss at the time, he was brilliant. Um, so I think with the support of those people, I kept going. Mm. And I remember talking to someone who's a bit older in, in the industry and she said something to me that really stuck with me. She said, look, I'm in my 50s now. My kids are at university. You know, I am so glad I persevered because I have a brilliant career now. You know, I exec projects that I want to exec mm. and you know I'm, I'm just so grateful I didn't give up and that really I sort of held on to that yeah. and thought you know if I can get through this hard bit there will be a turning point and you know what there is there is you know my kids are 12 and almost 10 now and, and mm. it has changed massively but it's really really hard I mean you know you feel like a terrible mother when you're not with your children and then when you're working you feel like you're not giving it your all I mean it's it's tough yeah, and we must stop bashing ourselves up because actually, you know, you're doing the best that you can in the circumstances. In what ways do you think the industry could be kinder to working mothers? I mean, actually, I know that obviously COVID has been terrible for so mm-hmm. many reasons, but actually having a little bit of flexibility in your working day mm-hmm. has been helpful. You know, I have been able to pick up my kids from school and then work a bit later or get up earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, you know, I think flexibility is key. And I think the problem is that even when companies say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, don't worry, you know, you can do this, you can do that it doesn't work because the meetings are exactly at the time that you've got to pick up your kids or, you know, as much as people have good intentions, it Mm -hmm. never quite works. So I think that really needs to change. I think people have to really commit to that flexibility and, and for mothers not to feel that they're uh, missing out if they're doing things that they have to do. So I think we still need to work on that. Mm. And I suppose when you look back on all that you've achieved, Fozia, you know, if you could have your time again, would you have done anything differently? I think I would have pushed harder at directing. I think I would have directed more. I think that was a confidence thing. I think, you know, a few people said things to me that probably knocked my confidence in that area. So I wish I'd been a bit braver and tougher on that front. I also think that getting feedback and getting criticism is a really important part of the process, but it can be quite crippling if you're not... um, from a certain background so when I what I mean is that you know when you go to Oxford or Cambridge you know you this is what my friends told me who have been you know your your work gets critiqued weekly and you get used to that process and you don't take it personally and there's probably a million reasons why you don't take it personally but I think that unfortunately when you're diverse in our industry people are a bit more scared to give you feedback honest feedback yeah. and I think that that's not always helpful so I think that needs to be addressed in some way I also think that being able to take feedback and not take it personally and learn from it and grow is really really important and I think I was quite sensitive and I think I did find it quite crippling you know when I'd sit in an edit and the editor would say well this is a bit shit (laughs) (laughs) where's your wide shot or where's this where's that I'd be like oh god I'm terrible Um, (laughs) and actually you know I but I I mean I you know I did get over it and I did learn and I don't think that the way people necessarily gave me feedback was helpful but what I mean is I think being able to get feedback or even if you're not getting feedback to give yourself feedback (laughs) so to look at what you're doing and say how did I do that did I do that well how could I improve that you know just to have that conversation with yourself and be quite honest and unafraid of like examining when you do things wrong because that's normal you know everyone does things wrong it's about being able to learn from it 
I think that's really key. And I wish I could have done more of that. The thing is, I suppose it depends on what the kind of environment and the working culture you work in is like. Yeah. If you work in an indie where you've got great line managers and execs who are really collaborative and, and they give you that direct feedback and there's that culture of, you know, we're not attacking you, we're just giving constructive criticism, then I think everybody would feel supported and empowered to do their best work. If you don't have that kind of working culture, you are going to take things personally. I know women especially, you know, we have real issues with imposter syndrome, with confidence. And so getting comfortable with being new at something and making mistakes is something we really have to push ourselves to get over. Let's talk about self-development. I mean, have you ever invested any in any training for yourself or gone on any courses? You know, I've been lucky enough to go on courses because I worked at broadcasters. You know, they, mm-hmm. there, there is training available. So that's been yeah. really helpful. I think for me, I've, I've really tried to do a lot of it myself. And it's quite introspective in that, you know, I do have therapy. I do have coaching. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to work on that I have and you know it used to feel really indulgent you know I used to remember sitting, sitting there thinking god you know I've just become so middle class sitting here you know talking to my therapist but actually you know there was there was a lot of stuff to to deal with you know that was really important and which was a bit of a barrier you know in some ways so um I don't see it in that way now I see it as a really important part of my development is to it's what we were just touching on you know I think if you can think about your fears and really sort of put a magnifying glass to them and really understand them mm. uh, it's the way to, that's the only way to work through them and to kind of see where they're coming from why certain things are stopping you I mean a big thing for me when I used to go into channels is I used to just feel like an imposter and I used to feel like I didn't want to open my mouth because I was um very self-conscious that I was going to say the wrong thing Mm. and what actually coaching and therapy taught me is just don't worry about what you're going to say just listen (laughs) and don't be in your own head to just be in the room and listen to what people are saying and actually if you start engaging with what's going on you know what to say (laughs) because you're in it rather than in your head and just things like that that seem probably quite obvious um just come naturally because you then feel comfortable because you're engaged in the conversation exactly so um so it's stuff like that that I really had to work on um, that's really changed the changed, changed the way I operate. But did you often find that you were, you know, very often the only woman around the table or certainly the only woman of colour around the table? Because it is difficult when you're the only one finding that courage to speak out. Yeah, I think that I wasn't even aware of it, maybe. You know, I, I noticed it, of course, but I don't think I was aware of the impact of it necessarily and it's only when I've been in more diverse environments um that I've suddenly thought oh god I can actually be myself now Mm. and you know a lot of that is just being in a room full of different people um so I think I think it affected me much more than I realized yeah Mm. but I suppose the the amazing thing for you is you being you and being so successful at Amazon you know you're going to inspire so many other people to you know just because you are the example that it's possible for them and they're going to follow in your footsteps so it's it's amazing I'm really proud of that thank you thank you I'm not very good at taking praise but thank you oh now I've been asking everybody throughout the lockdown what one thing should all women read watch and listen to if they want to nurture their minds and get ahead 
Oh my god, I'm such a, I'm a terrible person because I just read novels and it's, uh, I'm a total escapist. You know, I don't read like inspiring books or anything like that. I think I get all of that from coaching, mentoring, therapy, you know, my my network of close friends. I think I get all that stuff that helps me, boosts me from those places. Um, mm. So um, <laughs> I don't know what to recommend because I just read. <laughs> yeah, but what do you read that you recently really enjoyed? Because it's just nice to know what, you know, what things you like. You know, I'm a bit geeky, so I like sort of reading science and uh, history. <laughs> um I mean, I, I mean, I, I read it quite a while ago, but it was really probably quite um, life changing. And I just loved it so much was Sapiens and Homo Deus. I just thought they were two brilliant books about humans. And I found them quite comforting, even though there's some slightly um, scary things in them, because you just realise a lot about human beings and the fact that, you know, everything goes in these sort of cycles. And actually, the world is getting better in lots of ways, you know, and we, sh- we mustn't forget that. Well, that sounds good. See, see, I'm intrigued already. <laughs> lots of people listening that are really into science as well. They'll go, oh, well, I'll order that on Amazon. <laughs> and do you listen to any podcasts other than Wonder Women, of course? Um, I've been listening to Louis Theroux's Grounded. Um, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love listening to people's stories. I mean, I love reading obituaries. <laughs> things like that I do. <laughs> that's quite dark <laughs> it's, it's dark but not because not because of the death aspect but because of the life aspect actually yes, to sort of know about a sort of life lived and all the amazing things that people do and what I find really inspiring is when people have different phases in their lives you know when they've done different things at different points and I think that's that's a really important thing as well you know to sort of move on and um you know experience many lives within one life I think is is quite inspiring yeah and on that note then do you ever see yourself moving into a different industry doing something completely different from television because we're multifaceted right we've got lots of different interests and passions I think so I think I don't think this is my I I think I will have one other career after this for sure I don't know what it is yet (laughs) maybe going back to science maybe you're trying to be a doctor I might be a bit old for that but um yeah I think I'm totally in it at the moment and enjoying it so um I'm gonna not give it too much thought right now (laughs) finally I must ask you what is your message to the women of the world you know what I was thinking about this and I, I think asking for help you can never ask for too much help and I think that asking for help is not a weakness it's actually a strength because when you ask people for help you're giving them permission to ask for help too and I was just thinking about this, like, you know, I love it when a mum says to me, oh, can you pick up my kids and feed them? Because I'm really stuck today. Because I think, do you know what? Actually, that's brilliant. Because if I'm ever really stuck, I can ask the same thing. And I think that's how you build communities. And I come from a culture which, you know, everyone helped each other. You know, if someone made too much food, they'd bring it to your door. You know, that was normal. I mean, when I tried to do that in my sort of North London leafy street, I think my neighbours thought I was trying to poison them. I mean, you know, I just <laughs> think that, um, I think that, that that sort of sense of community where you, you say to people, you know, I'm stuck, can you help me? And then give them permission to do the same is really, really important. Yeah, I agree with you. And we've, it's been nice to see some small acts of kindness in local communities happen throughout the lockdown and the pandemic, actually. It's been really lovely. And I hope it continues. I hope, you know, as things reopen, that we don't go back to our old ways we keep some of the positive things yeah definitely definitely and I think you know having your networks having your people having your communities is you know for me I I wouldn't be here without that 
Fozzie, it's been so lovely chatting to you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening. Hopefully you've got more of an insight into what it's like to work at commissioner level in television, along with some invaluable life lessons and words of wisdom. You can find out more information about working in TV and what we do at wonderwomentv.com and you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at wonderwomentvuk. Finally, this podcast was produced by me, Rhea Hebden. Thanks for listening.